to tell you how old that uh, biography is, uh, I think I've gotten three or four more vicars since that thing was put together, but uh, no more grandchildren. So uh, thank you. I was so looking forward to this conference that uh, I worked really, really hard to get a bang-up lineup group of speakers, and I could just sit back and do nothing and listen, and things didn't quite turn out that way. So uh, thanks for uh, putting up with me and letting me pinch hit. It is, um, it is an honor and a privilege to welcome you to the ninth annual ACELC Free Conference. Thanks to Emmanuel here at Eagle, Nebraska for hosting us. And also thanks to KNNA 95.7 The Cross LP Radio out of Lincoln, Nebraska for uh, all the work that they've done, for the extra equipment that they bought, and uh, by the grace of God, everything that we're doing right now is live over the airs, in over the air in and around Lincoln and through the internet throughout the world. So um, what, a, uh, what a great opportunity and what a great uh, blessing that is. The Association of Confessing Evangelical Lutheran Congregations was formed in 2011 after our first free conference where we outlined 10 errors that we had identified as being tolerated or promoted in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The history of our formation has been well documented, so I will not plow that same ground for you today, even though we did have the parable of the sower for our uh, opening devotion. If you're not familiar with that history, uh, check out the website, acelc.net. Everything we have done, everything we are doing, and everything we continue to do is on the internet, on our website, in the spirit of fraternal love and full disclosure. Over the past several years, we have chosen one of our topics from the errors document and built our free conference around that topic each year. In 2012, we had a, for our topic, the Lord's Supper, and especially the doctrine of closed communion. In 2013, we had for our topic, worship, and examined the growing presence of contemporary, or as I like to say, revivalistic worship among us. In 2014, we examined the Office of the Holy Ministry and continued with that theme the next year by addressing the topic of the sinful removal of pastors from their office. In 2016, we tackled the complex issue of the dispute resolution process and offered some constructive criticism. In 2017, we looked at the role of women in the church with a special focus on the order of creation. And last year, we looked at the giant elephant in the room, the elephant that has been in the LCMS room since 9-11 and the Yankee Stadium event, we looked at the topic of unionism and syncretism. This year's topic, Mission and Evangelism, is addressed under the theme, Christ for Us, the Church's Mission and Evangelistic Task. As the past chairman for the ACELC, I've had a hand in the structure and content of every one of our conferences, sometimes uh, to a greater or lesser extent, but I've had a hand in all of them. need to tell you, this has not been an easy task. We have asked several prominent theologians in our synod, as well as several high-ranking elected officials to participate, to attend, and to make presentations. For the most part, we have been turned down. For the most part, we were turned down graciously. Some have told us that the risk of being associated with a group like the ACLC, a group that is actively calling the LCMS to repentance, is just too great. Some have agreed to speak, but later backed out due to pressure. Pressure from 
brother pastors, pressure from brother professors, pressure from the ecclesiastical supervisor. The men who have presented in the past and those who are presenting this year, and I mean every one of you, are to be commended for their churchmanship and their courage to make the good confession here and throughout the world. Thanks be to God. Tell you a little bit about my thought process, which is really a scary thing when you get right down to it. In putting together a conference, I've always tried to follow the basic approach that we used at the seminary. What does the Bible say about a topic? Exegetical. What do our Lutheran confessions say about the topic? Systematics. How does this topic been treated among us in the past? Historical. How does this topic play out among us in the church today? Practical. Hopefully you can see that pattern unfold in our conference this year. Sadly, our primary exegetical presenter, Reverend Robbie Rojas, is unable to be with us due to a family emergency. Pastor Rojas has been a very strong supporter of the ACELC in the past, and we look forward to having him present and possibly even be a presenter in the future. There was one area that I just could not find anyone to tackle with this regard to this particular conference, and that is a historical review of mission and outreach in Lutheranism. And so I'd like to take the rest of this introduction time to give kind of a survey, a brief history to refute the myth that Lutherans don't care about outreach, mission, and evangelism. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has always been considered a missionary church. That may seem like a bold statement, but it's true. All depends on what your definition of missionary is. For many, the story of the Saxons escaping the religious persecution of their native Germany, traveling by ship to the United States and settling in Perry County, Missouri, is a pretty familiar one. People look at us, and what do they say? Devotion to the German language and zeal for the maintenance of pure Lutheran doctrine. That's what those Lutherans are about. That's become the stereotype for the early days of the Missouri Synod. A more honest and detailed reflection will discover much more. Speaking of the LCMS, its zeal for the pure Lutheran interpretation of the gospel, its thoroughgoing system of schools and publications, its rapid transition into the English language, its skillful use of mass communication, and its great energy spent in missions and benevolence have given the Missouri Synod great importance in this country. Amazingly, both of those observations were given by the same author, three decades apart. The Saxons, our forefathers, were hardly the first Lutherans in America. A year before the Mayflower sailed from England, August 1619, a colony of 66 Danish Lutherans landed on the shores of Hudson Bay. Most died that same winter, including their pastor, sorry guys, Rasmus Jensen. In 1638, Pastor Reoris Torquillus led a colony of Swedish Lutherans that settled on the upper Delaware. A later pastor named Campanius translated Luther's small catechism into the tongue of the Delaware Indians. Historically, this is the first book ever translated into an Indian dialect. Many Lutheran churches were established by these Swedes. 
including the first Lutheran church on American soil, dedicated on Tinicum Island, September 4, 1646. Sadly, by the 1800s, these churches were losing their identity, and by 1900, nothing of the old Swedish Lutheranism remained. Every church still in existence had become Episcopalian. Early German Lutheran efforts in America were marked by turmoil. Lutheran settlements are referred to as early as 1642, and in 1657, the first German Lutheran minister, John Guttwasser arrived on the banks of the Hudson. He was immediately arrested and forbidden to conduct services and eventually forced to return to Holland. Religious freedom was finally granted in the area in 1664 and German Lutheranism thrived, due in large part to the activity of Henry Melchior Muhlenberg. Despite his tireless efforts to advance the doctrine and practice of Lutheranism, after Muhlenberg's death, these early German settlements soon lost their theological moorings. By 1820, there was a Lutheran general synod, but few congregations were still using Luther's small catechism, and most had absorbed the doctrines of the churches and sects around them. The Salzburger settlements near Savannah, Georgia, in 1734, were the result of religious persecutions in Austria. Rather than deny their Lutheran beliefs and convert to Roman Catholicism, they accepted the invitation by General Oglethorpe to settle on the banks of the Savannah River. They faced much persecution during the Revolutionary War for their support of General Washington and the cause of freedom. Known for their zeal for pure doctrine and missionary spirit, they sought out scattered Lutherans in North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, and even as far as Missouri. From this settlement came the great confessional Lutheran family, the Henkels. More about those at our banquet tonight. Paul Henkel was indeed a pioneer, pioneer missionary, followed by his sons Philip, one of the founders of the Tennessee, David, a great Lutheran theologian in the English language, and Polycarp. I'm going to have a dog someday named Polycarp. One of the organizers of the first English conference in the Missouri Synod. It is not known exactly how much of this early American Lutheran history was available in Germany by the 1830s, but it would certainly play a major role in the establishment and mission endeavors of what we know as the LCMS. Without doctrinal integrity and confessional loyalty, Lutheranism in America would soon be as theologically bankrupt as the Lutheranism in Germany, a bankruptcy that forced true and uncompromising Lutherans to emigrate to a land of religious freedom. In their zeal for pure doctrine, they would be very slow to link up with others, making sure that they were truly united in God's word and the Lutheran confessions. They would also be very suspicious of innovation, trusting the tried and true practices and language that had been handed down to them by the faithful Lutherans of the past. All this and more would shape the missionary spirit of the Saxons. On September 7, 1844, the first issue of Der Luther Honor was published in St. Louis. C.F.W. Walther, the brilliant young theologian, who had helped the Saxons survive both theological and moral crisis, was its editor. The paper spoke very plainly regarding scripture and doctrine, with the major purpose of rallying American Lutherans around the banner of sound theology. About the same time that the Saxons settled in Perry County, pioneer missionary Frederick Winnikin arrived in Baltimore. Inspired by missionary magazines he had read in Germany, he soon made his way to Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. Everywhere he went, he sought out German-speaking people, especially German Lutherans, with his fiery, energetic, and well-educated style. 
His travels and encounters led him to believe that his countrymen were quickly becoming heathens in this new land. In spite of his great personal zeal, he realized the need was too great for one man. He returned to Germany in 1841 and personally pled for more Lutheran pastors to be sent to America. Hearing and heeding the call were William Leah of Bavaria, best known for his preaching ability and untiring work in sending many pastors and teachers to America. August Kramer, who founded the Frankenmuth Colony in the Saginaw Valley. William Seiler, the first vice president of the Missouri Synod. And Ferdinand Sievers, considered by many to be the father of Lutheran foreign mission work. When, Winniken and Le- when the Winnikin and Leia men read Der Luther Honor, they knew they were not alone. Meetings were held. A constitution was hammered out. And in 1847, the Missouri Synod was born. One of the first orders of business was to take over the mission work among the Indians in Michigan. Haydn Missio. Missions to the Heathen has been a part of the Missouri Synod from the very beginning. This was a companion to, not an alternative to, home missions. Mission work among the Michigan Indians saw early great success. So much so that the Synod considered a proposal in 1848 to begin a new Indian mission in Oregon, even in the midst of an Indian war there. The idea was to use this mission plant as a springboard to mission work in the Asiatic countries. Four years later, a proposal was considered to plant a Lutheran colony in California to serve as a mission center to the Indians and Chinese there. Some have now looked back on these early mission efforts with disdain. They are critical of, quote, cultural parochialism and ethnic introversion that tried to make German-speaking Bavarian farmers out of nomadic deer hunters, unquote. And the growing German nationalism of the 19th century. These observations and criticisms hardly seem fair. One example when in Bethany, Michigan, missionary Byerline accepted a call to a new mission field, many Indians wept aloud in procession, entering their own canoes to accompany him a little way, and they sang in the Chippewa tongue, All glory be to God on high. The nomadic nature of the Indians, as well as government efforts to relocate them on reservations, made mission work very difficult, if not practically impossible. The multitude of Indian dialects made the language barrier even more difficult. The Lutherans tried to help the Indians adapt and assimilate in the midst of the great westward expansion. Difficulties with land promises and acquisitions by the Government Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington and unscrupulous dealings with other church groups, especially the Methodists, diminished the trust level of all American groups working in mission. With all these challenges, Synod decided to close all of its Indian mission work. Some have deemed this effort a colossal failure, but the church records of only one of the several Indian mission statements, Frankenmuth, show scores of Indian baptisms, both infant and adult. There was a great zeal in these early days for mission to the heathen, but God seemed to be moving this infant church body in a different direction. Home missions, or inner missions, as it is sometimes called, became the specialty of the Missouri Synod and the springboard for many foreign missions as well. Home missions in the early days of the Missouri Synod is often very misunderstood. Some today see this activity as a type of maintenance ministry or ministry only to your own kind. 
giving the impression that Germans only cared about other Germans. Or even worse, Lutherans only cared about other German Lutherans. What is lost in this assessment is the magnitude of what was happening in America. Immigrants poured into America for a wide variety of reasons. Many remained in the East, and a large number were making their move west, but nearly all of them came through the harbors of Baltimore and New York City. These immigrants, ignorant of the language and ways of America, fell easy prey to thieves, money sharks, and swindlers. They needed help, both spiritual and material, and help is what they received. F.W. Folinger, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in New York, made this situation and need known through the Eastern District and Synod. C.F.W. Walther's son-in-law, Pastor Stephanus Kale, answered the call. What began as a district mission project was soon assumed by the Synod. Kale sought out all German-speaking immigrants immediately upon their arrival. He made arrangements for suitable dwelling places until something more permanent could be secured or until they began their journey to destinations farther west. He advised them regarding the best or safest places to consider for their location, always urging places that had a strong or growing Lutheran church and educational facilities. Don't we do the same today when our members move to a different part of the country? Yeah, live in this part of town. There's a great church right there. It's a school over... We do the same thing. He guided them in a variety of ways regarding spiritual and moral concerns. He was also in charge of all financial aid and kept impeccable records. By 1883, he had personally worked with and cared for over 27,000 immigrants. Inspired by his work and God's success, a similar mission to immigrants was opened in Baltimore. While this immigrant home mission took place in the East, the bulk of home mission activity appeared in the West. In home missions, the Synod faced a tremendous challenge. Of course, for those were the days of the Midwest frontier, when the Midwest and West were receiving tens of thousands of immigrants. The Missouri Synod faced the challenge admirably and strained its energies to gather German Lutherans into congregations and supply them with pastors. We can read column after column in Der Luther Honor of the difficulties of the Reich Prediger, the itinerant missionaries. They certainly deserve commendation, as faithful servants. During its first 45 years, 1847 to 1892, home missions was the primary mission activity of the Missouri Synod, and God blessed her efforts greatly. By 1872, the Synod already had 109 stations with 77,832 members. By 1875, three years later, it had grown to 257 stations with 112,590 members. In 1854, work expanded into Canada, resulting in the formation of the first Canadian district in 1879. Following the Civil War, the population of new and once sparse territories increased dramatically. The Midwest filled up quickly with people and many immigrants secured land for the first time of their lives. The role of the railroad was very important as they enticed people farther and farther onto the frontier. Many hurried frantically lest they miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime. The majority of these immigrants originated in Europe, particularly Germany and the Scandinavian countries. As a result of the lack of Lutheran pastors, many German and Scandinavian Lutherans joined other denominations. The need was so great for pastors that William Leah stated, Do not forget 
that many North American Christians are actually lapsing into paganism unless they receive aid from the fatherland. One would think that there would be great temptation in light of this emergency situation to simply have laymen substitute as pastors. Such was not the case. So great was the concern for God's word, pure doctrine, and people's souls that the response was an increased call for properly trained men to serve as pastors and increased educational opportunities. Much has been said recently regarding the examples of the Leah Sendlings and the need for flexibility regarding the training of pastors in emergency situations. Who were these Sendlings? And is this historical evidence of an emergency shortcut into the pastoral office? Some in our church body would have you believe that. Listen carefully. Leah's constant and consistent appeal for missionary help to Germans in America bore immediate fruit. Donations came pouring in, and the most unlikely of all people, Adam Ernst, volunteered for service. You think I make fun of my vicars? Well, get a load of this. A cobbler's apprentice from Osh, Bohemia, Ernst had already been turned down by another mission society. Leah saw his dedication and enthusiasm, but also his lack of education and training, and set in motion his plan for Nothelfer, or emergency men. Ernst quickly recruited a friend, George Berger. Leah noted, Now we have two students, and we had to consider ways and means to meet our objective. We must admit that our experience was like that of everyone who undertakes a new task without any training. We did not know what to do. So much did we realize that we could not make anything great of our two students. Two school teachers who would work at their trade and support themselves. That was our objective. A year of intense study followed with Leah assuming the vast majority of the training of the workers himself. The students studied in the morning. Courses included selected readings of scripture, the book of Concord, church history, geography, English grammar, composition, penmanship, singing, piano, methods in reading and writing, Christian doctrine, pastoral theology, catechetics, liturgics, homiletics, participation in the divine service, and in congregational life. That was in the morning. In the afternoon, Leah lectured the students. They met every evening for evening prayers at his parsonage. They accompanied him on sick calls and taught the catechism to children under his strict observation and supervision. On Saturdays, they would practice the musical selection of the Lutheran liturgy, chanting with Frederick Hummel, a renowned liturgiologist. At the evening prayer services, the students would take turns leading the devotion, and Leah would critique them. After more than 12 months of this intense study, Leah, reluctantly, and only after Winnikin's urging, sent them to America. Ernst and Berger were the first Sendlinge, that is, emissaries of Leah. They were sent with this ringing endorsement. It is better that the poor sheep be led to the green pastures and still waters by you than by no one at all. I won't list any of my vicars that come to mind. Leah sent them with strict instructions. They carried with them a statement that they were leaving Germany under their own free will. They also carried a pledge of allegiance to the confessional writings of the Lutheran Church and a very detailed instructions regarding missionary activities, what they could and could not do. 
He also advised them to join a truly Lutheran synod like the Ohio Synod. They journeyed to Columbus, Ohio, with Berger immediately rolling in the seminary and Ernst teaching in a German school by day and working as a cobbler by night, supporting them both. Leah had considered these two men unfit and ill-prepared for the task before them. The Ohio Synod wrote back to Leah and begged him to send more such well-trained men as these. His sendlings had indeed received only a little more than a year of training and schooling. But Leah had condensed nearly an entire seminary course and curriculum into that one year. By 1853, 82 candidates of theology, including 23 similarly trained Nothelfer, had come to America through his efforts. Even after Leah and the Missouri Synod parted ways in 1853, most of these men joined Missouri. In 1847, there were 22 pastors in the fledgling synod. 1848, there were 50. 1849, 61. 1850, 75. And by 1872, 415. Thanks be to God. Laymen were also put to work in this area of home missions. Coal porters, whose duty with duties clearly defined by the Synod in 1852, were sent into settlements that had no preachers. They were to sell Bibles and hymnals, catechisms, and other devotional materials. They were to admonish people to organize and establish the office of the holy ministry in their midst. Call a pastor. And in the meantime, to conduct private services in their homes. They would teach the people how to conduct devotions, how to teach the catechism to their children, and how to perform emergency baptisms. The office of Rice Prediger was officially established in 1860, and the first of these traveling missionaries was sent out in 1865. But the home mission spirit burned brightly long before these official actions. The history of the expansion of the Missouri Synod is a story in itself. It is the story of missionaries who were self-sacrificing men, whose hearts throbbed with the love of Christ and his people, whose religious convictions were sincere and deep, who were staunch and sturdy in all sorts of weather. Day and night they were on their way, sometimes afoot through the pathless forest, sometimes on ponies or in their buggies, riding and driving across the trackless prairies. Using whatever means of transportation were available, they continued in season and out of season in their endeavor to bring people the bread of life. The state of Wisconsin was brought into the Missouri Synod in 1848, Minnesota, 1856. Early visits to Iowa in 1848 were not well received. Too many Husker fans, apparently. A pastor took charge of a small congregation there in 1856, but he didn't stay long because of difficult conditions. Pastor J.F. Desher, do we still have Deshers up in the Beamer, Nebraska area, Bob? Yes. Came in 1859 to the Iowa City area and at one time had a circuit of 28 preaching stations. The Missouri Synod came to Nebraska in 1868, and uh, uh, if you want to check out that footnote 43 and talk to Pastor Mays during uh, one of the breaks, it is, uh, that is worthy of a book or a movie all on its own. California, 1860. Louisiana, 1853. The Wens in Texas, 1858. Arkansas, 1869. Tennessee, 1860. Alabama, 1867. The very Roman Catholic Massachusetts in 1862. Connecticut and Rhode Island in 1866. Ontario, Canada in 1854. Nova Scotia, 1866. Montana, 1881. 
All of this happened during the Civil War. Indian uprisings, covered wagon travel, prairie fires, a railroad system in its infancy, and no mass communication. Does this sound like a lack of mission, outreach, and evangelistic zeal? Ha! In January of 1875, the year before Custer and Little Bighorn, Pastor A. Luthauser, from just outside of Grand Island, Nebraska, gives this account of home mission work. I am the westernmost of our missionaries working in Nebraska, and my field of labor reaches out into Colorado. In the next town of about three or four hundred houses, and settled with mostly German-speaking people, I have not a single member. The reason for this is that religious tramps calling themselves Lutheran pastors have brought the church and the ministry into such ill repute that it will take a long time to restore the honor of both. I live about 14 miles from the town in question, in the center of my congregation. My people are scattered over an area of about 25 to 30 miles so that I can travel some 15 miles in any direction from my dwelling to visit my 25 families and a few unmarried men who have settled in this neighborhood during the last three years. They are all poor because of the last grasshopper plague have become still poorer. Some of them are actually in need of support if they shall not starve. Under such conditions, I cannot expect to get any salary from them this year. And since they could not pay the promised board money, nor were able to take me into their small homes, I made them the following proposition. If they would build me a Nebraska palace out of Nebraska marble, sod and earth, I would live in it till the Lord would bless them with better times, crops, and prices. Does this sound like a lack of mission zeal or ethnic and ecclesiastical preoccupation? You be the judge. This is just one example of the spirit of home mission work. Perhaps Vice President Brougham summed it up best in his 1872 address before the Synod in convention. Immigration from Germany has in the last 25 years taken on such proportions as to become a matter of world history. And our Synod has followed this immigration step by step as a true servant, ever seeking to bring the bread of life to the scattered brethren of the faith in the desert of this great western country. It was during this same convention that Brome insisted that the Synod make more generous provisions for the use of the English language in parish schools and synodical institutions so that the people of the Missouri Synod might be better equipped to witness Christ among the American people. The language question festered in the Missouri Synod for many years. This is an area, too, where we need to have more study and see what we can learn from our zeal and from our mistakes. Many, including Leah, believe that only in the German language could pure doctrine be preserved. Abandoning the German language meant abandoning true Lutheranism. Experience with the Ohio Synod and the General Council seemed to bear this out. Some in Missouri still held out the faint hope that German would be named the national language in America, a hope that was not fully extinguished until World War II. It is true that an American Lutheranism had emerged during this time, a Lutheranism that seemed embarrassed by liturgical worship and doctrinal purity. They became caught up in the spirit of the Great Awakenings, and new measures. The raging pietism of the 18th century Europe had found a new home in America. 
To be successful in their new home, this American Lutheranism sought to merge culture and faith and emotion. A new Augsburg Confession was even proposed. Some in Missouri placed the blame for this apostasy on the English language. Only after much time and caution and study did the realization come about that the problem had little to do with the English language and everything to do with a lack of Lutheran confessional integrity and conviction. As the flow of immigrants slowed, and especially the flow of German-speaking immigrants, attention turned to mission opportunities with English-speaking Americans. The top priority was mission work to, quote, the colored people of the South. Work began in 1877, but only after lengthy discussion. Many different mission opportunities were brought forward. But questions of working with established mission societies and their fidelity to true Lutheranism, as well as the resources necessary for overseas missionary work, helped the convention to see that God had placed a great mission opportunity in their backyard. Former slaves were now free, but many were poor, jobless, and uneducated. The question of language was certainly there, but this mission work would be done primarily in English. A mission board was elected to supervise the mission, and an itinerant missionary in the Dakota Territory was called to be the first work, do the first work among the colored. J.F. Desher, the same Iowa City Desher, same guy, same pastor, was a tireless worker traveling throughout Arkansas, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, preaching to former slaves whenever and wherever he had opportunity. He established and served as pastor to congregations in Little Rock and New Orleans. During this same time, Pastor W.R. Bueller, 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 a former German missionary in Africa started a Negro mission in Virginia. In 20 years, statistics showed 18 mission statements, 9 pastors and 6 teachers, 1,400 baptized souls, and over 800 in Lutheran schools. Perhaps most significant in this effort was the working together of the German and English language. A mission periodical, Dear Mission Straba, appeared in 1879 to encourage support for this early black ministry. For the benefit of the English-speaking colored readers, publication of The Lutheran Pioneer began. I have a few copies of that in my library. They're, uh, they're quite fun and quite rare. As a general foreign missionary was sweeping across Europe and America, Pastor Ferdinand Sievers of Frankenlust, Michigan, addressed the Synodical Convention in 1893. A veteran of both home missions in Michigan and the Indian mission work with the Chippewas, his words brought experience, authority, and conviction. The Lord has warmed anew the hearts for foreign missions and not only shows us that the doors to the heathen are wide open throughout the world, he has also given us the means for new work among the heathen. The convention reacted favorably, elected a mission board, and resolved to open a mission in, quote, some foreign field. How's that for a specific directive? As the delegates left for home, they were almost certain that somewhere would be Japan. Little did they know that God had a different foreign field in mind. Humanly speaking, Japan made perfect sense for this new mission endeavor. There was a Japanese student enrolled at the Springfield Center, Seminary. Japan had recently opened its doors to the world. Think of that uh, Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, and all the uh, Japanese people wearing uh, American garb. There was a strong openness there toward European culture and civilization. 
Less than one-tenth of one percent of the 40 million Japanese were Christian, and no other Lutheran church body was working there. As plans were just beginning for the Japan mission, Seavers and a lay member of the board, Lang, both died. These men, the men called to serve as director of missions, Pastor J. Weffel, returned the call. In addition, word reached the board of missions of a doctrinal controversy with the German Lutherans working in India. Two Lutheran missionary pastors had severed their ties with the Leipzig Mission Society as they could no longer subscribe to its views regarding the inspiration of Scripture. Maybe that was an early walkout of Lutherans. I don't know. Theodore Nather and F.J. Mohn were conversant in the Tamil language, desired to stay and work in India, and seemed to be in complete doctrinal agreement with the Synod. Synodical President Schwann, yes, that same ice cream name, put the matter before the convention of the individual districts. The districts agreed to change the mission from Japan to India and extend an invitation for the two missionaries to meet the board. I need to take just a, just a, a little sidebar there. How many times have we been told that until the synod meets in convention, there's really nothing we can do and no major big decisions can be made? I've heard that many times. You see what President Swan did? He put the matter before the conventions of the individual districts. Might be something to explore if we ever have a conference in the future regarding ecclesiastical supervision and the work of synod. I'll just plant that seed. These two missionaries, upon their arrival, were orally examined regarding their doctrine and practice and formally called by the Missouri Synod to serve. Their efforts bore much fruit and have resulted today in the India Evangelical Lutheran Church with more than 400 congregations and 600 preaching stations. The Synod's success in home missions also bore fruit abroad. German Lutherans had been living in South America, especially Brazil, since the 1820s. Many of them had fallen from the faith due to a lack of pastors and teachers. At the same time that the tide of immigration was bringing thousands to the American shores, South American governments were giving glowing reports in hope of diverting some of the folks a bit more southward. Think of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Let's go to Bolivia. Germans relocated by the thousands to Latin America, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and Paraguay. Starting in 1898, in Brazil, the work flourished. The Brazil district of the Missouri Synod. Did you realize that at one time there was a Brazil district of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? It was established in 1904. They soon branched out into Argentina and Paraguay. Today, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Brazil has over 1,300 congregations with nearly a quarter million baptized souls. The Evangelical Lutheran Church of Argentina, 265 congregations, 30,000 baptized souls. The Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paraguay, 62 congregations and nearly 4,000 baptized souls. So much more could be said and so many other mission projects highlighted. But time today will not allow it. Many books need to be written. There are amazing stories that need to be learned, studied, and told in our churches today. The story of our mission work in China is alone worthy of several volumes. Have you heard of our relief efforts and mission work in Germany following World War II? What about LCMS mission work in Cuba, Japan, New Guinea, Hong Kong? The Synod establishing itself in Mexico, 1922, Alaska, 1926, Africa, 1936, Hawaii, 1945. The touching story of how U.S. airmen 
befriended a Korean young man with a study scholarship in 18, or 1948, who would in turn turn out to be the father of the Lutheran Church in Korea, one young G. The list is virtually endless. Included in these stories are many doctrinal controversies, personality conflicts, and even political ambitions. Shocker. Such is the way of sinful man. As our conference unfolds today and tomorrow, please keep these lessons and heroes of the past in mind. Ask yourself what it is that makes one a truly confessional Lutheran and what a distinctive Lutheran theology of mission and outreach means for our church and our world today. I'll end with this quote. Lutherans from the very beginning of their arrival in America have turned to their confessional writings in order to define their identity, organize, and unite themselves in a religiously pluralistic society. More than any other denomination in America, their confessions have played a decisive role in shaping their mission and ministry, the theology and practice of various Lutheran bodies. Lutherans who approach the confessions from their biblical character would not stress the need to obtain simply an agreement in doctrine, but to arrive at an agreement on the pure doctrine of Scripture. Such a position would further lead the church to strive not for a formal acceptance, but a practical reception of the doctrine set forth in the book of Concord. In other words... The church must preach and teach that doctrine to those sitting in the pews on Sunday. Welcome to our conference. May God bless it in Jesus' name. Thank you.